It's the moment that Formula One strategists dread, almost more than any other, the appearance of the safety car. Its deployment can turn a race on its head, with a whole host of decisions needing to be made in seconds, to pit or not to pit. And if you do pit, what tyres do you put on? And on the back of that headache, welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is the man who's driven the safety car for the last 20 years, Bernd Maylander. The 49-year-old German was an excellent touring car and sports car racer in his own right, and he's now driven more than 700 laps in the lead of Grand Prix. On average, each race is, say, 60 laps. So Maylander has led the equivalent of 12 races from start to finish in various Mercedes. And while the safety car is an integral part of Formula One, there's so much more to it than what we see on our TV screens once it's been deployed by FIA race director Michael Massey. In this episode, we're going to drill right into the heart of the safety car and find out about the attitude of the Formula One drivers towards it. Like, how does Bernd feel about being given the hurry up by Lewis Hamilton so often? And what were his thoughts on that massive crash at the safety car restart in Mugello? Bernd and I caught up in Portimao, a new track for Formula One, and typically it turned out to be one of the few races this year in which the safety car wasn't deployed. Blah, there's always the next race. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're sat in Portimao, a new racetrack for Formula One, certainly for a race. Is it a new racetrack for Bernd Mayland? Well, I saw many, many racetracks around the world uh, in my active career and also as a safety car driver. But Portimao was for, I don't know, 50 times on my list uh, to be there with the MG family when we do our driving experiences. But uh, I never had time to, to get down here. We have our AMG branded garage here because we do our owner customer things here, but um, at no time. So it was uh, to be driving around the track yesterday, the first time I've been running uh day earlier around the track but i tell you it's completely different to driving around could you do a track walk just like the f1 guys yeah absolutely i did the track walk with uh well with with, with the fi with michael massey and uh i was already yeah that looks really cool then one of the guys from portimao he's at burned but if you drive around with the safety car or with a proper car it's different and believe me, it was completely different. So I was quite happy to have a co-driver next to me uh, who tells me, okay, but now it's going uphill. I think there will be a left corner now. So a really impressive, uh, great track, I have to say. Even in a in a safety car, it's a fantastic track. Can't believe what will be in, uh, if you're driving around in an F1 car because the speed difference are, it's amazing. Now it's a cool track, but this is also a really cool stat that I'm about to give you. Only three drivers on the current grid, Hamilton, Vettel and Raikkonen, have led more laps in Formula One than you. <laughs> that stat makes me laugh. How does it make you feel? Yeah, well, it's a pleasure somehow. <laughs> uh, now, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, well, I'm doing this job now since many, many years. Exactly. It's my 21 season to be in Formula One. Yeah, and I think if you count all the years together you come out of a lot of, of laps but it's quite easy to lead the field in my job because the safety car has to stay in front of the leading formula one car so currently i'm just for a small moment i'm the leader and that race uh, i just guide the guys around in the say in the well in the speed what we have to do tell us what it feels like when you're leading the field do you feel a lot of pressure 
it starts already when when I can see in my parking position end of the pit lane. If it starts, if I see a crash, let's say, or if car stocks in the gravel, whatever happens, then your blood pressure goes goes up, your heart rate, I'm really sure it goes up. And the adrenaline, it's always there. It's 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 that's the fantastic thing. It's still the same than 20 years ago. And that's exactly why I love to do this job. The big moment is when we get the radio call from race control when we can deploy. Because that's the first big moment to try to catch the leader. Because then it gets quite easy because then the field gets together and we punch them together to line up them in a nice way. And if, let's say, if the leading car goes for a pit stop, so the whole strategy is changed. So we have to wait for the proper leading car in that moment. And you have to always, you have to Im improve or you have to make, uh, you have to listen to the radio for sure. So that's every situation, it's a new situation. And that's the quite interesting thing on this job. It looks maybe quite easy, but there's so much communication in the background and um, you, you cannot do what well, you're doing procedure one, two, three. It's always a different procedure. So Bernd, what are the words that deploy you? So you, you have a direct line to Michael Massey, the race director, do you? It's Michael Massey, a direct line, and to Colin Haywood. Probably Colin is on the radio and, uh, well, he, he's guiding me, but he's guiding me because Michael gives him the the right uh, the right answers but what are the words does he say burnt deploy safety car or is it very formal or is it an informal go 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 like murray walker how does it work <laughs> no it's not like go 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 uh it's uh well usually in a normal situation we get safety car standby if we have enough time to try to figure out the, the, the real problem or what we have to do exactly usually then it's safety car standby so the flashlights are going on we try to put uh, already for all the teams uh, on the screen, safety car will be deployed. And when we get the information by radio, safety car deploy, that's the moment when the yellow lights are on or orange lights are on. And I deploy as quick as possible to the safety car line number two, what is usually end of the pit exit where they can join the track in a proper way. That's the place where I wait for the leading car or for the first car. Right. So you've waited for the car. You've picked up the leader. How hard do you then push? It's always also up to the situation. If we, uh, let's say, if it's in the second lap, it's quite easy because they are all still together. But if it's in, in lap 40, they are all over the track. And some cars are already lapped at that time. And then it's get even more tricky than in the beginning. The best thing for me, for myself, I was a race driver. Uh, it's always to go as quick as possible. That's the easiest way. Because then you are really focused on your personal lap. You have a nice race speed in the safety car uh, for Formula One. It's always always too slow, I have to say, somehow. But um, it's starting to get difficult if you have to slow down. That's guided by race control because they have the real overview over the whole circuit. They know exactly where is, in which position, where is the, the last car, let's say. And they guide me and they said, okay, bro, now you have to slow down a little bit. The last car is just joining the second last car, things like that. And that's how you handle your speed. In the corners, breaking points, I'm always on the limit. But on the straights, I'm, I'm lifting sometimes massively. So let's say um, if, I, if you can do 250 on a straight, sometimes you go just 150 or 140. So when you get criticism over the radio from someone like Lewis, it's invariably Lewis because he's invariably the guy directly behind you. Please tell the safe guy to speed up. It's unsafe for him to go this slow. For us guys with these tires. Okay, copy. We'll feed that back. 
are you hearing that? And does he not understand that you're trying to wait for a car to rejoin the back of the field? Or what's your reaction to that? Well, I, I could hear him. So I could easily tell to the communication guys, uh, let me listen to the drivers as well. But uh, in general, it makes no sense. Maybe just confused us in the safety car. I have a co-driver with me, Richard. He's doing the radio. In the end, he's answering in the radio. I can talk all the time into the radio system, but that makes no sense to listen to the drivers for me. I'm listening to race control. I get the information from race control, but I get sometimes during the race, I get from friends, I get uh, messages. Um, Louis was already complaining, you're driving too slow again. <laughs> Is that true? Well, for sure, I'm not reading this during I'm driving, but uh, I read this after the race. Well, I can understand him, yeah, absolutely, sometimes, because he's if he's the leader in, in the race, and let's say if he's leading by 10 seconds, and uh, all his advantages are gone, and then the safety car is driving slow. Uh, so he's frustrated, isn't he? He's frustrated. That's, that's, that's normal. But in the end, he knows it is a quick road car, but it's not a race car. So he understands completely. That's his... Uh, but let's say character. Also, Sebastian, all other drivers sometimes they complaining the safety cars too slow. For me personal, no problem. And sometimes I'm talk to the drivers or they're talking to me and they know exactly that that's normal. But can you put a number on it so that people listening to this can understand how much slower on a dry lap around Portimao, for example, is the safety car compared to a Formula One car? Well, in Portimao, if I'm uh, right, they're doing laps in the moment uh, around about 117, is this correct? Let's say uh, in qualifying, they're doing a 114 or 115, something like this. And my quickest lap, with, uh, also with new tires, will be around 158. Uh, that's the difference. We're always counting it per kilometer. That's much easier. Um, between eight and nine and a half seconds per kilometer. It's a different world of Formula One car. I tell you, it's... Uh, uh, it's like if you compare it to uh, airplanes, it's like a, a nice private jet against the Starfighter. Both are flying, but in a different speed. Can we continue talking about the drivers? Because I'm fascinated to know, do all the drivers follow the safety car in the same way? So whoever's leading the race behind you, does Lewis behave differently behind the safety car to Valtteri, to Max, to all the other drivers? I have to say, well, uh, sometimes it's quite difficult with Lewis behind me because, uh, yeah, he's always pushing, he's accelerating, he's braking, he's driving really zigzag. Sometimes he's getting very close to the car. Um, Intentionally to try and push you on a bit, do you think? I am not sure he really if he wants to push me because he, he, he knows it. But that's, that's, that's his driving style. He tried to do everything to keep his tire in the right tire, t uh, in, in the temperature window that he's um, in the right moment back again and uh, so he's quite strange to following because sometimes I'm lost him already in the mirror I couldn't really realize where, where is he uh, on the left side or on the right side because he was in the blind spot but that's up to the drivers in the end I try to be as careful as possible uh, for sure but uh, I really hope I'm nothing will happen in the future <laughs> but also you as you said at the start you've been this is your 21st season so you've had lewis behind you you've you've had michael schumacher behind you for many years what was michael like michael was quite quite calm but he was also quite quite tough i have to say uh valtteri bottas he is really cool behind me he's always using the same distance he keep distance to the safety car uh max i have to say as well he's not really hard pushing me 
Nico Rosberg, uh, he was also very quiet behind me, so he, he was always in the right distance. Sebastian, hmm, yeah, he's uh, sometimes <laughs> also hard. I would say he's quite close to Lewis, but Lewis is definitely the toughest. Isn't it uh, fascinating that they have different styles when they're following you? Yeah, absolutely. So that's how they try to prepare the car for the restart. And that's uh, quite fascinating somehow. For, for me, in the end, it doesn't change anything. Uh, for sure, sometimes maybe on Lewis, I look a little bit more. And I have to look a little bit more to my mirrors. But uh, in general, not, nothing changed, yeah. And what about your general contact with the drivers? How much do you see them over a Grand Prix weekend? Well, so if you're talking about uh, season 2020, it's uh, difficult to see them <laughs> over the over the weekend. Um, but in general, yeah, we, we saw us many, many times before. For sure, I'm in contact with a few drivers. In the past, it was even more. I'm not getting younger, by the way, so... I met, but you're not getting well, slower. I'm, 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 I met in the past many times David. I still uh, met David and um, because he's not racing anymore. But this, this year it's very special. In general, we have really good contact. We have the driver's meeting together. So they always can uh, talk to me, asking me some questions. And it's, um, I have to say, a really good, uh, well, we are our team. Because in that moment when I'm on the track, we have to work together and not against. So that's uh, very important. And that's what we definitely doing guided by our race director so uh, in that moment we all have to work together i mean they can race them racing let's keep thumbing through the last 20 odd years the worst conditions you've ever been out in in the safety car difficult to say because it was three different cars uh, i would start with 2007 the race in fuji uh, was uh, very tricky many laps uh, i deployed i think three times and the that car was, was the race, wasn't it? Where Vettel ran in the into the back of Weber. Yeah, correct. And Alonso and Lewis have also contact. David crashed also somewhere. I, I can't really remember, but yeah, that was a spectacular race. And uh, we've been nearly running out of fuel. And the car was really tricky to drive under these wet conditions. And we still, we, because Fuji, it's a really long straight. I guess it's 1.3 kilometers long, a little bit downhill in the end. And uh, so we went up to 280 kph, but you didn't really realize that because you've been, that was a, for me like, like a race, to be honest, at that time. And that was a very tricky situation. Then for sure, 2011, mid Montreal, we've done 34 laps, what I heard. I'm usually, I'm not counting this, but... I seem to remember you led more laps in that race than anyone else. Is that right? Uh, correct, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sebastian was very close to, but then I think he, he stuck in gravel in the last lap and Jensen won the race. Yeah, and that was the only lap that Jensen led, yeah, wasn't correct, it? Yeah, correct, yeah. So that was uh, quite tricky. And for sure, uh, China was also a very uh, difficult race on the rain conditions. So I nearly lost the car when I... No, now I can say that, yeah. But uh, luckily, I did exactly the right thing in the right moment by aqua planning. So that was very tricky. So Sebastian was behind me. And then after the race, he came over to me and said, oh, Bernd, that was, that was very close to be off track. And yeah, I said, yeah, that's correct. Have you ever spun whilst leading the field? No, not in front of the field. Also not uh, during the practice sessions on, on Friday, uh, on Thursday, sorry. Uh, but I was quite close to in the practice session, not in the race, I have to say. Because in the race... It's a safety car. You you can't win any trophy. You can't get the checkered flag, let's say. Uh, you're doing just your job and you're driving not over the limit uh, or not 
out of control, let's say. Sometimes you're really close to, but I think that's the worst case. If you're a safety car driver and you lose the control of the car, and if you lose the control of the car by aquaplaning, that can happen, but by a normal standard think oof, I, it wouldn't be a good look would it? it yeah and i think it's not <laughs> not quite nice to make any interviews afterwards how much does the race director communicate with you when it's wet how much is he relying on feedback from you about when to go green again we, we start talking about quite quite early uh doing that procedure when the safety car deployed and already well just straight after and i let him know what's about the track conditions I tell him exactly where, let's say, where we have standing water, things like that. And then I also report to him, okay, now we get a, a nearly a little bit of a drier line. So it's getting better and better. And then usually race control, they are also listening to the leading driver, to the midfield driver and to the end, let's say, to the drivers. And then they make a mix of that. And I recommend them, let's say, okay, so next two, three laps should be okay. And then usually they put another one, two laps on top to be safe from their point because I can't tell them about the spray because I have a really good visibility because I'm the leading car. I don't know what's going on in the midfield or on the end. Let's wind the clock right back now. And can you tell us how you ended up becoming the Formula One safety car driver? Well, this was uh, in uh, 1999 in, uh, during the San Marino Grand Prix in Imola. I was racing with uh, Porsche at that time in the Porsche Super Cup, and I'd done some other championships by side. But this was my main championship. I was really focused on it. We came back from Melbourne from the start of the season where we had our also our first race. I feel great. I have Friday free practice session. I've been fastest. I get a phone call with a number plus four four. And I said, oh, okay, that must be well, a British number. I picked it up and um, Charlie Whiting was on the phone and Charlie said, Burnt, uh, here's Charlie Whiting, the race director from Formula One. I said, yeah, Mr. Whiting, I know your name. Can you come to my office, please? And uh, I said, yes, I can. Yeah, I tried to get uh, access to the Formula One paddock. because. Sorry, did you think you'd done something wrong? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, but well, that must be a massive problem with my car, maybe, that the FIA <laughs> get involved. But uh, it, it wasn't. I was... Uh, yeah, so I didn't really know what was going on. And then I organized by Herbie Blash because he was our race director, a co-race director of the Super Cup. And he organized the ticket and access. And then we went to Charlie's office. And just Charlie asked, Bernd, uh, we know you. You've been racing for Mercedes before. And now you're racing for Porsche. Uh, Oliver Gavin, uh, what was my one of my colleagues in the ITC in the earliest year, uh, he was racing Formula 3000 and he was usually racing, uh, driving the safety car for all the championships. And Charlie asked me, Bernd, can you replace Oliver Gavin for Formula 3000 in the safety car? You know the car and you know the brand and you know the rules. And I said, just yes, yes, for sure. I can do that. I'm here for the whole weekend. So He wanted you to replace him there at Imola. Yeah, okay. so just for the next day because okay. that was the uh, that was the first race of Formula Three Thousand. So Oliver couldn't drive the safety car and his own cockpit in Formula Three Thousand. And so the next day, I was sitting behind the steering wheel in a Formula Three Thousand race. To be honest, I had not really any clue what I have to do. But the co-driver he told me everything what I have to do. And so '99 was my first season to learn the job, what I have to do, the communication things, and everything. And then from uh, 2000 onwards. 
I was sitting for all the races, more or less in the safety car. Oliver Gavin, he moved to America. So uh, I don't want to say I really replaced him, but he moved. And Charlie asked me, Bernd, are you available for Formula One as well? And uh, that was quite fantastic because uh, it was a great job. So you've been a part of the FIA. You've been a part of Formula One. I still was racing. So that was uh, really cool. So... How hard was it to dovetail both, to be to be a professional racing driver and the safety car driver? In the beginning, when you are young, you easily you, you can handle that. Um, at that time, 20 years ago, it was not, I would say, not on such a... It was already very professional, for sure, but you had not so many meetings and things like that. So you, you could handle that. I was racing for Porsche Supercar, and then I was running to the F1 paddock and jumped into the safety car to bring the car on the grid for the Formula One race. So that was quite easy. But after five years, I felt also then with other championships, what I did with DTM again, with Mercedes, I felt a little bit tired. And that was also why I said to Norbert Haug, I will get retired from racing end of 2004 to be really focused on on this FIA job uh, with the safety car. Ah, come on, Bert. So you, you had to give up one and you decided to give up the racing to take the safety car? I mean, as brilliant as it is, let's remind people who aren't familiar with your career. You know, you won DTM races. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's true. How but hard was it to, to make uh, well, that call? It was, it was quite hard because 2001, 2002 was really tough years for me. Uh, I got an accident in 2001 with my right heel. I broke or oh, smashed the right heel. And it was completely destroyed. 2002, I got a, a lung uh, collapsion on the right side. So they took the piece of the lung out. <laughs> and Was that uh, the result of an accident as well? No, that was just by, by we still, we, with the lung, we, we really, we don't know it exactly. With my heel, it was, I jumped over a fence in, in the evening. And on the other side, it was a little bit higher than on my side. <laughs> and I realized it when I just can listen to the air was flowing more and more on my ears so that something goes wrong now. And uh, that was one step in 2002, the next step. And then I knew, okay, it's got really tricky to come back. It works a while, but then you realized, okay, you're not uh, 20 years old anymore. And then uh, it starts to change my mind a little bit about, not about racing, but just also the to have fun. Um, it was quite hard in this, this times, I have to say, to drive a one-year-old car in a championship like DTM. You know, you can't win anymore. So that was a little bit frustrating. And then I decided to, to stop racing. But it doesn't mean that I'm never raced again. One of the guys you raced for was Keke Rosberg, Team Rosberg. Um, what was it like to be in his team? It was great. I, I met KK was, I don't know exactly, must be in the 90s some, somewhere. And um, it was great to, to know him, to see Nico, how he, how he gets uh, bigger and bigger from a, from a young boy, from a car driver to a uh, Formula 3 driver. Then he won the GP2 championship and then he got a seat in Formula 1. That was really great. And then he joined also the Mercedes family. Uh, because I was still a part of the Mercedes family at that time. So you saw, through your association with Team Rosberg, Nico Rosberg, come all the way up from a, a little boy to world champion, effectively. Absolutely. And if you see the the, the character of KK, how he's fighting, how he's be focused on, on everything, also the team, it was great to be a part of that team. 
for sure in 2004 we never had the the best the best car in the in the field but it was great to be a part of the team and that was uh, uh, for me one very important step in in my life to have fun to met Keke in that way also on the private side so I have re really good rememberships for for this time does Keke get involved in the driving you know does he come in and say look Bernd, what's going on with the car does he make any suggestions from a setup point of view was he that kind of a boss no, no that that he left always over to his engineers and to his uh, team manager uh, he was not on all the races. On many races, he was there, and we had our, our meetings there. But uh, he was the backup, and he was uh, doing the big business. He was doing the deals. He's doing the deals, yeah. Okay. And how did you see Nico evolve and change and grow in confidence in the time that you were racing? Well, Nico was really focused what he has done, and he was he was also, I think, a lot of under pressure with uh, because his father was. Uh, yeah, he was world champion and um, he won DTM races. He won many races, let's say. So I was really sure that he really wanted to be in every championship. When Nico turns up, he, he tried to win the championships and that's what he did. So for me, he is definitely one of the quickest qualifying driver ever. And the problem with Formula One was he never had the best seat um, when, he, when he joined Williams. Uh, in qualifying, he was unbelievable quick, I have to say, already at that time. And also then with Mercedes. But the problem was, there was Lewis. And uh, that's from a friendship goes to a really strange situation that you have to really fight against your card friend from, from the youngest year. And he did exactly what he knows, what he has to do. And that's why he got world champion. And that was a really tough, a really tough fight from, from that point, what I could see. That's how you have to work in Formula One. Sometimes it's really strange mm. uh, to beat your teammate because as a racer, you have to beat your teammate to be number one. Were you surprised that Nico just walked away in the way that he did? Yeah, I, that's why I exactly know when I get the information, when I, was, when I heard the information by radio, I can tell you exactly where I was. Because you, you were that surprised? Yes, I was exactly right. that surprised that he stopped racing and he is stepping back, yeah. Yeah. One of those sort of massive moments, wasn't it, of yep. the recent history in Formula One. Now, look, one of Nico's teammates at Williams was Mark Webber. And of course, you raced with Webber at Mercedes as well in the in the GT cars, didn't you? That was a young Webber. That was then. a very young, young <laughs> Webber, yeah, correct. Memories of racing with him. And also, who else was on that team? Bernd Schneider? Yeah, he raced with Bernd together yeah, on yeah. the car with the, with the yellow what mirrors. Was, what, are we talking 98, 99? We're talking about 98. Wasn't it? Was okay. it 98? Yeah. 98, 99. Mark joined uh, Mercedes for the GT Championship. I think he came from Formula 3 from, uh, uh, from Britain. And he was really quick. Sometimes he did some mistakes, but his teammate, uh, uh, Bernd Schneider, he won also the championship in 97. So with Bernd, he was always, yeah, uh, more or less in the front row. And the combination was quite good. Uh, because a young driver, a very experienced driver with Bernd Schneider. So it was a really good combination. And we had a lot of fun together. Uh, it started from the our fitness weeks, what we have to do before the season, during the season. So Mark was a really, or is a really nice guy to, to have fun and to be very serious in racing. I remember him saying that Schneider, he learned a lot. He said he, I think 
he grew up, I think, when he was teammates with Schneider, is I think what Mark said to me once. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that definitely. We had a, uh, our team manager, he was always very tough. The main engineer was, was quite strong. And then together with Mr. Alfred, who was the team former, uh, the combination was really strong. And then on top, Norbert Haug as a... a director of motorsports so this combination was i think we all get quite good educated in racing we we know how to make uh, parties we know how to how to race by the way um so this combination well, it it builds you up in a way and this was uh, really really nice to to join the family since since 95 with mercedes wow it's been that long so so when you went off to race for porsche they must they kind of like that well, I was racing for Porsche just a couple of years before, from uh, more or less, and then in between, 99 and 2000, because there was not really a, a project what was, for me, interesting, 99, just Le Mans, uh, and luckily I haven't done Le Mans with Mercedes, because now I can say this, they've been flying. Mm. Which of <laughs> so course, Weber as well, twice, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? twice, yeah. And I was racing for Porsche and Le Mans that year, so that was quite lucky because i did more than 30 races in one season that's a lot so i found my personal way again in 2000 i was fighting for a few championships uh finished second and fourth okay could be better but uh, it was good enough to get a phone call from norbert haug again to to join the mercedes dtm family in 2001 again as much fun as your job sounds do you miss racing well i stopped racing in, in, in 2004, officially for championships, I did another two races, I guess, afterwards. And then it was a long break. I'm, I was sometimes in a GT3 car for testing, things like that, for presentations. So I was driving race cars, but not really on the race conditions. Now, look, let's talk more about the safety car. How has it evolved in the 20 years that you've been driving it? Well, if I think what we had in uh, in uh, 99, in 99, we had a road car with some sporty seats inside, with a small radio system inside, uh, with 300, I guess, 360 horsepower, something like this. What model was it? That was, uh, in 99, was a CLK 55. It was a normal V8, 5.5 liter engine, a strong engine for that time. I drove the car just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you can't believe it. It's like uh, if you're driving a... Yeah, how can you say? <laughs> Historical car. <It's>, <laughs> Does it feel that far back? It feels so <laughs> soft and you turn in and you really can count down. You can make a count on one, two, and then it turns in. So it's, it was very, everything goes very slow. But at that time it was, well, yeah, the quickest car of, of the AMG. And uh, in 2000, when I had my first Formula One season, in, it started in Melbourne, we had a CL55. What was a, uh, even a bigger car, same engine, same power. Uh, and the spare car was still with leather seats. So it was the standard leather seats inside then if you buy the car for the road. And that was uh, very impressive because it was a huge, big car. And yeah, well, it was that time. It was, that was normal. And then from 2001 onwards, we really developed the car. So Because you felt it was too slow for the F1 cars? Or why did you feel the need to develop it? It was also it was a combination because I really pushed the program in the company. I told them we have to get quicker we have to get even more sporty the brakes been not that good because the all the cars the weight of these cars are so heavy the brakes are being not that developed than right now for sure so we try to make cooling systems so it was always like a small prototype of a road race car but the funny thing was when we started in 
in 2000 to developing the cars. Uh, since then, we, AMG, they built a brand of the Black Series of a limited edition. And that was the, that was the start when we really worked prototype-wise on, on our road cars to make the safety car quicker than the standard road car. And the end was the product of the safety car. Now, let's talk lap time again. So what's the car you're driving now? Well, in, in the moment we're driving, or since uh, that's already the third season, we have a AMG GTR, what was the quickest road car. So it's a standard road car, 585 horsepower, V8, 4-liter engine. Very powerful, great car, I have to say. Handling perfectly. It's a really, it calls the beast. But that's not really correct because it's it's a nice car who tells you exactly what's going on uh, so it's not a it's not a beast so when we go back to Imola how much quicker will you be in the GTR than you were back in 99 when you were the Formula 3000 safety car driver well I guess uh, I don't know exactly numbers but I'm I'm really sure uh, in percentage terms how much percentage quicker? 15 15 to 20 percent quicker it's a different world right now it's the, I think the uh, the real sports car like a GTR, it's so much quicker than 20 years ago. You cannot really compare it. Bose makes good fun, but if you have the right tire on a GTR, it feels like a like a GT4 car nearly. So a very tough, quick car. Uh, you can make a little bit of the setups. You have downforce. You can feel the downforce. But still, you're on, a, on road tires. That's the problem. So after two, three laps, the tires are getting... Uh, uh, yeah, worst, you get not so much grip anymore, and then you tr you start to slide a little bit, yeah? And you, you say that you were pushing the program. How involved did the boss of AMG, Tobias Merz, get in the program? Well, Tobias was, uh, especially in the beginning, he got uh, really, really involved in that because he was the technical director of the AMG cars, from started from the engine to suspension to the brakes to everything. And I remember exactly when we tested the... Uh, the SL55, SL55 in 2001, we've been testing in the winter, the winter before. We've been in South Africa for to making tire tests, brake tests, engine tests. So he was really involved and he pushed the program as well. And uh, so we've been really, we've been working on the car together to make the car quicker. So uh, in, in, in a really in a pro proper way. And that's that says everything, the, the passion of, of this brand in that time and still but in that time you really had to work you could work on the cars in right now it's up to the design studios and all the engineers and uh, so Tobias Mercy was a really important man to bring the safety car where we are now and Tobias is of course now the boss of Aston Martin working with Lawrence Stroll and probably going to have at some level some influence on the Formula One team in as well yeah uh, <laughs> just a couple of weeks I we had a nice phone call together and it was quite funny so I just said well now you've been on AMG and you thought oh, you've been on AMG the CEO and now you're in a quiet place and now Aston Martin is coming back in Formula One I'm really sure you will be involved as well so uh, yeah it's 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 I'm really looking forward to see him on the tracks with the brand of Aston Martin uh, Aston Martin, it's a, a huge brand with a big, big culture. It's nice to have these kind of brands in Formula One. So this is year three of the GTR. You've told us that. When are we going to see a new safety car? 
Is it a three-year cycle? Are we expecting something quite soon? Well, it depends to the marketing strategy of, of Mercedes and AMG. Uh, in the moment, the only quicker car in, on, on the market, it's uh, the GT Black Series. And that would be well, great for me to have a Black Series because it's, well, I know it's just the data. I haven't driven the car, but I heard many things from my colleagues. And they said, well, that's really, that's between a GT4 and a GT3 car with the right tires on. It's a... Uh, 730 horsepower it's it's really yeah that's, <laughs> that's proper that's proper and good numbers for me it sounds very good but uh, that's up to amg in the moment we i personally i think we stay on that car for the 2021 season should be nice to have uh well yeah always if you can have the chance to go quicker you usually want to do that you're and that's, so a racing driver still burn yeah that's 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 true <laughs> Now, what do you have in the safety car? So you've got Richard Darker sat next to you. You've told us he's doing a lot of the communication and that kind of thing. But what else have you got with you? The most important thing it's in, in the safety car, for sure, it's the radio. We have two extra screens inside uh, where we can follow the race. We have a GPS mapping inside. That means we can see all the 20 cars going around the track by a track map. We even can see if they have, let's say, if they have an accident and they hit the barrier, we can see the G-forces. It's not so important for us. It's even more important for the medical car. But uh, it's good to know that if they have, a, if there's a big crash or just if they just stop the car on the side of the track, uh, things like that. We have a marshalling system inside. That means we can see on which panels, the yellow panels, green panels, whatever, around the track, which is uh, showing which color. Well, for sure, two different radio systems. We can see the live feed. That's very important for us. We can see also the sector times. So we can see in, in the end exactly the same what all the teams, what, what they can follow on the pit wall. And of course, Richard, as you said earlier, is in charge of the lights. Correct. What was your take, Bernd, on the crash at Mugello earlier this year on the start-finish straight? Safety car is ending... Mylander will send it to the pit lane and we're about to restart the Tuscan Grand Prix on lap number six. It's going to become lap number seven and we go racing once again. Oh, there's a big crash in the background there. Round goes one of the Hasses. There's a McLaren involved as well. We're still racing down to turn number one, but the safety car will come out again with multiple cars involved. Magnussen, Latifi, Sainz and Giovinazzi have all been involved in that crash on the start line before we even got running again. Oh, my God. If you're okay. That's dangerous. Antonio, are you okay? Yeah, well, what, what the f*** they're doing, honestly. Some drivers blamed the time of the safety car lights going out? Well, it was a tricky situation um, because some tracks, they have a layout uh, what is not, not really good for the safety car. For the safety car line one, for the overtaking line and for the place where we usually switch the lights off. We decided to switch off the lights, or not we, we decided before the race and all the drivers, they knew it, uh, that the lights are going off just before the last corner. And it's still, I don't know the numbers exactly, but it's still, I guess, something with 700 meters to the start or to the overtaking line. That gives enough time for the leading driver, because from that moment on, when we switch lights off, he's the leading car. He's responsible for the speed, for his strategy, and when, when he wants to accelerate, let's say. Safety car line one, just to explain this to everyone, they can't overtake me before I pass the line. 
So if they pass me what Alonso have done many, many years ago, he get penalized for that. And it was just, let's say, one meter, something like this. So they have to wait until I'm behind this line. And uh, well, Mucello was, was tricky because of the layout. And uh, personally, I, when I switched off the light, I tried to go as quick as possible back to the pit lane. And I haven't seen the accident in a live version or on TV because at that moment I was just entering the pit lane. So I was behind the wall. I just saw a few bits and pieces flying around and I said, okay, there must be a crash. And from that moment on, I knew I have to deploy again. So You didn't even stop at the end of the pit lane. I didn't even start at the end of the pit lane. Yeah, that's correct. And well, I think we sometimes in some places we have to adapt our procedure where we switch off the lights in the future to make it even easier for for the drivers because um, we, we be working together in, in, under s something special or something special situations like that. And that's that's what we're doing so far. We have uh, the same, nearly the same situation here in Portimao. Maybe we will have the nearly the same situation in Imola. Luckily, we never had this situation before, but, but now with new tracks, we've been really focused on always on the calendar, which kind of track and everything. And now with new tracks, we, we have to think about it. And that's why we always have to improve our system and why we are talking to the drivers, the drivers talking to us. And that's uh, quite interesting to be also a part of that. Mm. There's so many different elements, aren't there, to going to a new track. So many people focus on just what are the drivers, the Formula One drivers doing. But of course, this is a whole nother world of stuff that needs to be sorted out and thought about, isn't it? That's absolutely correct. And uh, you always think, okay, you are prepared for that. And then still some, some new things are coming up. And coming back to Mucello, it was not a mistake that I switched the lights off too late. It was in the end, we never had this situation and the drivers never had this situation. Valtteri did exactly what I, when I was in Valtteri's position, I would do exactly the same to accelerate as late as possible uh, or not too early. And for sure, then the, then the, it starts just, I think it was roundabout in position 10 or something like that to get a little bit chaos. And then, yeah, because everyone wants to just to get his small advantage, maybe to overtake one or two cars in the first lap. And that's exactly what, what can happen in racing. But we can make it safer. And I think we, we, we do it safer or we learned about it. And that's exactly what, what, what's our plan. And that's, that's good. Now tell us, if you would, about your race day, because it's not just Formula One for you, is it? Could you actually just talk us through Burnt Maylander's race day in terms of what time you have to be at the track and all the different jobs that you're doing? Well, if you're talking about uh, a normal uh, race weekend in Barcelona or on the normal races, the race day Sunday, if you're talking about a Sunday, it starts with a very early wake up, let's say around about six o'clock getting ready, getting packed up because I'm flying home in the night usually on Sunday evening. And then seven o'clock, we're going to the track. We have always a small track test where we're checking all the marshals, where we're checking the light systems, the light panels around the track, where we calibrate also our GPS mapping. Another radio check for Sunday because we usually we do every morning a radio check on the car. And also for me, it's quite nice to have another two, three laps to yeah, feel safer. Let's say maybe it haven't rained until Saturday evening, then Sunday morning, you have a, a wet track. So I, I also have to adapt my driving style by, by under different conditions. So that's between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. And then it's already starts. We have a meeting. We have a, 
Formula 3 in the morning, same procedure like Formula 1, just a shorter race, but timetable-wise for me to bring the car on the grid, to open the doors, to make all the checks, to leave the grid on the right time five minutes before the green flag club. It's exactly the same in, than in Formula 1. Then we have Formula 2, just a little bit longer race distance than in Formula 3, same procedure. And then afterwards we have the Porsche Super Cup, same procedure, shorter race. And then we already have uh, one hour to to bring the car on the grid for the Formula One race. So it goes really boom, boom, boom all the time. And so you have four races on race day? On Sunday race day, yeah, four races. On Saturday, usually two, uh, Formula Three and Formula Two. But Sunday, it's really tough from from the beginning to the end. So my day finished after the uh, with the jacket flag in Formula One, let's say. And then sometimes the Biggest race is to get to the airport to catch the flights. <laughs> it's always been like that. In well, sometimes I, when I arrived by a car on some racetracks, I was also driving home with my overall. <laughs> <laughs> But you drive to a lot of the racetracks. Well, this season, yes. This season in Europe, I drove to many, many races. Not to Britain, not to Barcelona, but uh, all the Italian races, Hungary, Austria, Germany, Belgium. Yeah, that's it. If there's one anecdote that you could share with us about your time with the safety car is there something that stands out is there a funny moment or a strange thing that's happened to you there are so many many things what i what i what i learned what i have with this with the safety car it's getting more i would say yeah it's getting like like a brand and um, i would say i'm a quite simple person so for me what i learned and didn't expect after 21 years that I'm still nervous on the grid. For sure, it's always the same, some some kind of, but that's exactly what I really wish that I will have this also for, for the future to really to be into racing, to looking forward for the stars. I tell you when the light's going off, everything can happen and you have to get prepared. And that's the that's the great thing in my in my job to to help them if something happens, to do always the best. That's my moment. And if nothing happens, it's also really, really good, to be honest. So that's what I always say. The best races are always without a safety car on the track because nothing happens. And uh, hopefully that works for another couple of years. It always amuses me that you are the only guy in the pit lane who has a spare car. Because, of course, the F1 drivers no longer have spare cars, do they? You've yeah, got two. That's that's true. Why I, have you I've got, got two, two safety cars? Exactly, because the support races. Because the handling is much easier if you have two cars in the garage, because the support races, the cars have to get prepared for the next race. And all support races together is nearly one race distance of a Formula One race. So we can handle, the with, let's say, with the spare car. We don't say spare car because they are both exactly the same cars. It's just by a small number on the car, you can see the difference. So we usually... I personally, I don't know which car I'm sitting in. It's always up to my mechanic. Is that just, that's the car what you're using for this race? Go. And that's that's a good thing to have two cars. Yeah, so, and sometimes maybe, maybe I'm landing in the gravel, so it's good to have a second one. <laughs> <laughs> and and the spec is, so is it, a, it's a new set of tires for every race, is it? A full tank of fuel? Correct, yeah. Full fuel tank of fuel. Uh, for Formula One, we have uh, nearly a new set of tires on the car. It's just driven by one or two laps just to give the right grip level. But Formula One, we have always a, yeah, nearly a brand new tires, set of tires. For the support races, we're changing tires on a Saturday morning to get 
fresh tires for in the end for these five races it's exactly five races and if we have the car or have to use the car for many many laps for sure we will put another set on the spare car as well for the support races so my mechanics they really have to work how many mechanics have you got i have uh, two mechanics that's that's enough for the safety car and usually because we don't luckily we don't have any technical problems they just have to fix the brakes and tires and are you the only guy who drives the safety car does Michael Massey, race director, ever sort of nick the keys and go for a drive? Yeah, but uh, he's just bringing the car on the Formula One grid and he's doing his inspection in the safety car. And luckily, he's not driving uh, really full speed. So he, that's interesting. Every race, he drives it from the pit lane, round the track to inspect it and then leaves it at the front of the grid. Uh, yeah, for Formula One. And he's doing also every morning, he's doing his inspection lap or before every practice session by the way yeah he's doing his inspection lab lab so he knows the car but he never never drove really quick around the track i was gonna say is he quick maybe i have to teach him exactly how <laughs> how, how to drive a, a gtr on the, on the limit Bernd, thank you so much for your time everyone listening to this will have learned an awful lot about the safety car many thanks thank you very much Great thanks a lot Some great insights there from Burnt. I loved hearing the nitty gritty details, like him having to lift off on the straights in order to let the lapped cars rejoin at the back of the field as quickly as possible, and how different drivers follow the safety car in different ways. Hamilton, Vettel and Schumacher, always tough, always in Burnt's blind spot. Yet Bottas, Verstappen and Rosberg, always well behaved. Even how the safety car has evolved from a road-going CLK55 back in 1999 to the 585 brake horsepower AMG GTR of today is a fascinating story. And I love the image of new Aston Martin boss Tobias Mers working at a safety car development test in South Africa. Burnt, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. And before we go, let's have our weekly delve through the virtual mailbag to see what you're saying about the show. And I'm delighted to report that your feedback about having Toto Wolf back on Beyond the Grid has been good. Joe Coombs got in touch to say this. Great conversation from someone I look up to. Toto's hunger for success and his love for motorsports is truly wonderful. My dream is to one day be a part of an F1 team in some way, shape or form. Cheers. Well, as I said in the podcast, Joe, Toto is a machine. His work rate is phenomenal. And I guess that's what you call a hunger for success. Megan Louise Inman said, as soon as Nikki was mentioned, I started to cry straight away. And I was listening to it while sat on the bus to work as well. Nikki will always be greatly missed by the fans and by the people who knew him. He will indeed be sorely missed. And I think you could feel Toto's emotion coming through when he spoke about him. Now, Toby Howard said, was so cool to hear from Toto Wolf. It's inspired me to focus on my management degree and to try and be an F1 team boss one day. Well, go for it, Toby. Aim high and don't give up. Toto certainly didn't. And his story proves there's no obvious route to becoming a team principal. Now, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. And sorry if I haven't had time to read out your message, but rest assured, I read them all. And please keep them coming. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. As ever, Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs> <laughs>